Hello, and welcome to the Association of Academic Physiatrists podcast featuring advocacy in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Today's podcast will include a Q&A with Dr. Bruce Gans, Chief Medical Officer of Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and National Medical Director for Rehabilitation for Select Medical. He is the former chairman of the Departments of Rehabilitation Medicine at Tufts University, Wayne State University, Long Island Jewish Medical Center, and North Shore University Hospital. He also served as Senior Vice President of Post-Acute Rehabilitation and Senior Services at the Detroit Medical Center and as President of the Rehabilitation Institute of Michigan. He was also Senior Vice President for Continuing Care for the North Shore LIJ Health System. He is currently Associate Editor of the American Journal of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. He is a Board Director of the Foundation for Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and of the American Physiatric Education Council. He is Chairman of the Board of Directors of the American Medical Rehabilitation Providers. He is a past President of both the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation and the Association of Academic Physiatrists. He has served for 12 years as a board director of the American Board of PMNR. I am Dr. Alice Hahn, a spinal cord injury fellow at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation and a member of the Association of Academic Physiatrists Education Committee. I will be hosting this podcast. Welcome to the program, Dr. Gans. Let's get started. Thank you. Could you tell us about your training background and career experience? I certainly can. Uh, so I'm an engineer gone wrong. I actually, as a small child, had aspirations to be a nuclear physicist. My mother, who was a nurse, told me that I wanted to be a doctor, and eventually I decided, well, I have to do what I want, so I decided to become an electrical engineer with a minor in pre-med, and that led me to the conclusion that what I really wanted to do was a career in medicine and biomedical engineering, so I looked for a uh, graduate environment that would enroll me in both programs simultaneously. I simply didn't know that one couldn't do that, so I just did it. And uh, the University of Pennsylvania was foolish enough to accept me at both the medical school and the graduate school of engineering. So I did a sort of a do-it-yourself MD-PhD program uh, between those two organizations and accidentally discovered physical medicine and rehabilitation. I was doing research with a neurologist on the relationship between the electrical activity of muscles and the force that they generate, uh, and I actually had a lab that I was using, and it was PM&R department lab space, but nobody in the department was using it at the time, and it was right down the hall from the Pearsall unit, which is the rehab program at the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania. So I physically bumped into Frank Bonner, who was the chief resident back then, and said to him, so, like, what do you guys do down there anyway? All these people with wheelchairs and stuff. And so he showed me around and introduced me to the field. And it was basically like I was struck by lightning. So, oh, my God, this is what I want to do. I can apply the principles of engineering to the problems of people and make a difference. So it shaped my destiny. Um, I got as much as I could exposure to PM&R as a medical student and graduate student, decided to stop with my master's degree in engineering because I concluded that for what I wanted to do, uh, my clinical interests and clinical research were more important than the basic science approach that my PhD would have headed me to. And so I decided to go into rehab. 
I did some internship time at uh, Philadelphia General Hospital, which no longer exists. And I sort of figured that six months of internship at PGH was worth a year anyplace else because it was such a major trauma center and uh, a lot of crazy exotic things. And then went to the University of Washington for my residency, where in the course of my studies there, I discovered pediatric rehabilitation. And so I kind of fell in love again, and this time I fell in love with children and their parents who had disabling conditions because they were such ideal candidates to have engineering problem-solving techniques applied to the human condition. So back in those days, there was no way to formally train in pediatric rehab. You simply just chose to do it. And frankly, not many people chose to do it. Most of my peers were afraid of kids, not excited about the prospect of working with them. So I sort of organized my residency rotations as much as I could to emphasize the pediatric experience and then uh, became associated with my first mentor who was in pediatric rehab, Morris Horning. And Morris was extremely helpful to me, including by deciding to leave the faculty position early and leaving a vacancy that I was able to fill as a new faculty member at the University of Washington. So Friday afternoon, I was the resident on service at the Children's Hospital, and Monday morning, I was the director of the Department of Rehab Medicine. And that was kind of a crazy thing to do, but those were strange times. There just weren't very many folks who wanted to do those kinds of things. So that's how I fell into both PM&R for kids and I started having a role administratively. How did you become interested in advocacy on a local and national level? Well, what happened is that, as I mentioned, I fell into administrative responsibility, discovered that I seemed to be not too bad at it, and started realizing that organizations are so important because they're the source of the large economic engines that drive healthcare. Individual physician practices are very meaningful, very important, but they're small economically and don't have a lot of influence beyond the span of individual patients. And as my career grew, uh, a couple of years after taking my role at the Children's Hospital in Seattle and the faculty at UW, I got recruited to become associate chairman at Tufts University School of Medicine by Paul Corcoran who was then acting chairman, about to become permanent chairman, and he recruited me with the explicit uh, expectation that he would try to promote me to become chairman in a few years when he had had enough of that position. And so I, I gradually became more and more responsible administratively and saw the power of having control over an organization as well as the bird, but also saw that you have to speak up if you're running an organization especially or trying to work for individual patients, you really have to speak up to make a difference. So if a child of mine needed some equipment and Medicaid was refusing to fund the nonvocal communication device, I wouldn't just sit there and say, oh, that's too bad, I wish I could get that for you. I called up the Medicaid program people and started first arguing with them, but the argument became suddenly education And suddenly I was a consultant to the Medicaid program, helping them to put together rational criteria by which they could decide whose needs they would serve and who they would fund for devices like that. So it started like I think all physicians do. I was advocating for the specific needs of my individual patients and then realizing that you have to speak up 
and realizing that uh, larger academic organizations, larger business organizations have more influence and say, and that you can use those settings as a vehicle to get yourself heard and get your values expressed and get your points across. Does the voice or thoughts of one position have any impact on instilling change? There's absolutely no question about it. As already mentioned, at the level of the individual patient, your influence and authority is extreme. Most people don't realize in medicine how powerful the voice can be to the patient. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that we should be domineering and overly paternalistic, but we have a huge influence on patients. And the most expensive thing in the healthcare system is our pen because we are the ones who prescribe and define and cause to be expended almost all the things that everybody else has to spend money on. So there's a lot of power there. And one person alone can have an impact. First of all, for example, in Washington, uh, and I haven't yet mentioned how much time I ended up having spent in Washington, the voice of a physician is particularly well regarded because we're viewed as being knowledgeable and experts. So we're more likely to be able to be influential coming from the perspective of being a physician. And so the very nature of our professional roles gives us sort of instant credibility. And most physicians tend to be relatively articulate and able to communicate well. And in Washington, it's all about talking to people and sharing stories and convincing people to trust you and have confidence in you. It's only so far that data and evidence actually goes in Washington. A lot of it is built on relationships and stories because people who run for office uh, tend to be very relationship-oriented and people-oriented, and they tend to want to trust people and hear the stories and try to be responsive to them. So a single doc can have a huge impact. What do you recommend to trainees that have a new idea on how to improve the healthcare process? Well, not being silent is a good thing. Figuring out where and how to be an instrument of change can be important. A couple of things I've learned along the way. One good rule is praise in public and criticize in private. So if you're working at the level of an individual patient and trying to advocate for their needs, and I'll just make this up, you've had a difficult time convincing a surgeon to do something or the surgeon had a bad outcome and you think it was really technique, the smart thing to do is to talk to that surgeon privately and express your concerns and try to influence better outcomes for the patient. The unwise thing would be to criticize that physician in public and embarrass him or her and create an enemy for life and somebody who would no longer be willing to listen to what could otherwise be constructive change. So influencing people by understanding your ideas and how you can affect things can make a difference. The other thing is to make large-scale changes in systems, you either have to be in a position of responsibility, so embracing the responsibility of taking a leadership role, being the department chairperson, being the chief of medicine, being the medical director for a program, uh, being a committee head, being a, a leader in an organization. That's one way to improve the system. The other way is to, at the very least, if you're not the leader, to at least be part of the group and try to influence the strategies, tactics, and actions 
of an organization. Most larger enterprises have influence in relationship to payer systems, to referral relationships, to insurers, to government agencies, whether it's local, state, or federal. So being in a position to influence the choices that your organization makes can be a fast track to achieving change and improving the healthcare delivery system. What options are available for trainees interested in incorporating advocacy into their careers? The first thing is to recognize that you are interested and then look for people who have similar interests and are role models. I I get approached frequently by residents and fellows and sometimes even students who become aware of the things I do and have done and ask me for advice and guidance, and that's wonderful. It's great. It's always exciting to find somebody who has a shared interest. So as somebody who does this stuff, I'm always receptive to people wanting to seek some guidance uh, and share and ask questions and, and try to grow their own interests and abilities. The second thing is volunteer to get involved. For example, the AAP is reforming its public policy activity and is going to be having a new committee that's about to get organized soon. I've been advising the AAP as to how to go about that process and absolutely certain they're going to want uh, a trainee, young physicians uh, involved um, in helping to be part of that process. The Academy, uh, PMR, has a similar health policy and legislation committee that's actually how I rose to the ranks of president as I volunteered to become involved in the health policy and legislative activities. I was appointed to the committee. I eventually became chair of the committee. That got me in front of the board of directors all the time because the chairs used to participate in the board meetings, and suddenly I found myself getting elected into the board and then up the chain of command and ultimately to become the president. So volunteerism really works. You can also do it yourself. Uh, read, be involved. There are medical societies, state medical societies, the AMA. Those are all pathways that individuals can express their interest and enthusiasm for advocacy. What advice would you give to trainees that are interested in formal advocacy on a state or national level? Well, be knowledgeable. It's not necessarily that you have to be political. Some people think that being an advocate means you have to start throwing money at candidates and get involved in political parties. For us, it's usually not about partisan politics. It's not about the Republican view versus the Democratic view versus the Libertarian view. It's about the issues. It's about the needs of our patients. It's about our vision for a better health care system. So being involved and finding the avenues where you can express that involvement are important, and every state has a state medical society, so that's one pathway you can get involved. Many parts of the country have a local or a regional society for PM&R, and that's where kindred spirits get involved. These organizations tend to be more focused on pocketbook issues, tend to get more active and organized when there's a big fight, either somebody's threatening their turf in terms of scope of practice, or some insurance company or is trying to really whittle away at payment for something. So let's tend to get people in the world of practice more agitated and engaged. But, but especially the larger regional societies uh, are also just involved in proactively looking at issues that are important and trying to get involved. And they're always happy to have fresh blood, new people with interests. The other thing is you really have to be knowledgeable. 
to understand what the issues truly are so that you can be taken seriously. If you're not really well informed about the issues and speak up with what are faulty understandings or misperceptions, you won't be able to be effective and you'll simply embarrass yourself. So you do need to do your homework like anything else. You can't just make it up. You can have belief systems, but you also have to have facts and knowledge to support that so you can be viewed as an intelligent advocate who makes sense. What resources are available to trainees interested in state or national level advocacy? Again, there are mentors available, and you know every organization has somebody who's a leader, and most leaders are interested in helping to nurture future leaders. There are formal training programs. The AAP has the PAL program, which is a leadership development program, and typically advocacy and leadership do go together. So you could look at the PAL program as a pathway to leadership. The Academy has a leadership training program as well. So those are two very specific to within the field of PM&R pathways. Some societies have, at least from time to time, even funded fellowship opportunities. And there are very formal training programs, Robert Wood Johnson fellowship programs for training people in advocacy. I know folks who have spent a year in Washington being funded, not very well, but being funded so they could afford to survive. Uh, being a staffer in a congressional office, learning the process inside out, being educated as the whole process and being much more formally trained to become knowledgeable, especially at the federal level, of how the system works and how one can make a difference. What do you see as the future of physical medicine rehabilitation medicine? Well, I do have a crystal ball on my desk and I do gaze into it from time to time. But it's a little bit cloudy right now. I think the future is actually very exciting and very promising, especially if we advocate effectively so that people don't make the wrong choices out of ignorance. For example, in a highly coordinated and integrated care delivery environment, what could be better for our patients who have had some form of catastrophe they were born with or it happened to them through illness or injury than to have highly organized, coordinated care that understands their needs, understands function as well as health, and can really do the right thing proactively and help to keep people navigating through the system well. That's utopian. That's a vision. It's pretty much not what we have today, and the risk today is that as health systems evolve to become more and more bundled and coordinated and managed, they more and more will take control over patients' destinies and soft steer, hard steer, channel them into settings that they want patients to get to. And if those who do the channeling and steering don't really understand rehabilitation in general, the differences in the various settings, the differences in the qualifications and capacity of practitioners to have different levels of effect, it could be a mess. So what we really need is to make sure that we are engaged in shaping the future. And our future is much more than just in a rehab hospital or just in an office doing musculoskeletal practice. We have the ability and the potential to really become the guides for patients through the entire post-acute care continuum. Imagine someone has a spinal cord injury. If I had my way, I'd have a physiatrist be in the ER welcoming that patient into the healthcare system. 
helping to evaluate them, helping to plan their care, helping to shape the surgical experience, helping to guide the plan for when the patient should be transferred to the next level or setting of care so that they can use just the right amount of resources in the minimal cost but the right setting at the right time and not be booted out the door prematurely because some insurance executive thinks they don't want to spend any more money on this guy and not to do the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. So we have the potential as a specialty to really become dominant controllers over this spectrum of care and the process of care through the coordination across the whole continuum. Not that every single one of us will have to do that, but that's a huge value to the system. It's a huge opportunity, and it's one place where our capacity to be strategic leaders for patient care really can come to the front. Most people don't realize it, but one of the things we do best is identify how patients should be taken care of and where and when they should be taken care of, as well as what should be done for them. And some of those what's we actually do ourselves. But at least in my clinical experience, a lot more of the what should be done ends up having to be done by somebody else or someplace else. So managing the strategy of care is really one of the highest, most executive-level capacities that we have that almost no other specialties have and it can really be extremely valuable and powerful. So I think our future is rosy. I think it will always be in change and turmoil. I don't think there's ever going to be a time when there's only one definition of the practice of TMNR and somebody's going to do children, somebody's going to take care of pregnant women, somebody's going to take care of people with sports injuries, somebody's going to take people with neurological injury. It's always going to evolve and change, and how we relate to others in the system will always evolve. But we're especially well capable of playing nicely with others, helping to shape the behavior of others, helping to coordinate and manage teams, and it's all about teamwork and coordination in the future. So whether you're still going to be in office doing injections or managing brain injury patients in the acute setting, we have a rosy future to make a really important difference in the lives of people and a really powerful statement for the specialty itself. Thank you, Dr. Gans, for this insightful discussion on career opportunities and advocacy in physical medicine and rehabilitation. You're very welcome. On behalf of the Association of Academic Physiatrists, we would like to thank you for listening to this podcast. More information on podcasts and the American Journal of PMNR, including the journal iPad app, can be found on the AAP website at www.physiatry.org. This concludes today's program. Thank you.